Lesson 8 for November 17 to 23, Unity in Faith. Sabbath afternoon, November 17. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we as a church come to you on Sabbaths, but today here as we open your word, we pray that each of us as members of your church, as seekers, as those who are looking to see what the Bible says. We pray that your Holy Spirit will guide our thinking and our thoughts, guide our direction as we study your word this week. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's read that again, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In 1888, Seventh-day Adventists experienced a period of intense debate over the interpretations of some key Bible texts. While pastors and church leaders were debating the identity of the ten horns of the prophecy of Daniel 7 and of the law in Galatians 3.24, few realised how their hostile attitudes toward each other destroyed their fellowship and friendship and thus marred the unity and mission of the church. Ellen G. White deeply deplored this state of affairs and encouraged all those involved in these discussions to think carefully about their relationship with Jesus and how love for Jesus ought to be demonstrated in our conduct, especially when we disagree. She also said that we should not expect everyone in the church to agree on every point of interpretation on all Bible texts. But she also emphasised that we should seek unity of understanding when it comes to essential Adventist beliefs. And if you've got the time, you can read uh, Ellen White's uh, book, Councils to Writers and Editors, pages 28 to 32, as suggested here in the pamphlet. This week, we look at some essential biblical teachings that make us Adventists and that shape our unity in faith. Sunday, November 18. Salvation in Jesus. Although as Seventh-day Adventists we have much in common with other Christian bodies, our set of beliefs form a unique system of biblical truth that no one else in the Christian world is proclaiming. These truths help define us as God's end-time remnant. Question, read Acts chapter 4, verses 8 to 12, and chapter 10, verse 43. What importance does Peter give to the place of Jesus Christ in his understanding of the plan of salvation? Acts 4, beginning at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged by a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Acts chapter 10 verse 43. To him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that the good news is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19 Christ's death is the means of our reconciliation with the Father, bridging the chasm left by sin and death. For centuries, Christians have pondered the meaning of Jesus' death, resurrection and reconciliation he came to accomplish. This process of reconciliation has been termed atonement, an old English word that originally meant at one meant. This is a state of being at one or in agreement. Accordingly, atonement denotes harmony in a relationship and when there has been estrangement, this harmony would be the result of reconciliation. Church unity is thus a gift of this reconciliation. Question. What do the following passages teach about the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection? Romans three twenty four to 25 Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2 And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And 1 John chapter 4 verses 9 and 10 In this... The love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And First Peter chapter 2 verses 21 to 24. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Though we hold this belief in Christ's death and resurrection in common with many other Christian bodies, we proclaim it in the context of the everlasting gospel of Revelation 14 verse 6, part of the three angels' messages of Revelation 14 verses 6 to 12, which I'll read now. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, 
Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any one worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends for ever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. As Seventh-day Adventists, we place an emphasis on these messages that no other Christian body does. So, to finish the day, how can you learn to keep before you at all times the reality of Christ's death and resurrection and the hope that it offers? Monday, November 19, Second Coming of Christ The Apostles and early Christians considered Christ's return the blessed hope, as recorded in Titus 2.13, and they expected all the prophecies and promises of Scripture to be fulfilled at the Second Advent. Seventh-day Adventists still hold firmly to this conviction. In fact, our name Adventist states it unequivocally. All who love Christ look forward with anticipation to the day they will be able to share face-to-face fellowship with Him. Until that day, the promise of the second coming of Christ exerts a unifying influence on us as God's people. Question. What do the following passages teach about the manner of Christ's return? How does this differ from some of the popular notions of Christ's return? First of all, Acts 1, verse 11, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And Matthew 24, verses 26 to 27. Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Revelation 1 verse 7 Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. And First Thessalonians four thirteen to 18 But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this 
we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Bible repeatedly assures us that Jesus will come again to claim his redeemed people. When this event will happen should not be a matter of speculation, because Jesus himself stated, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Matthew 24 verse 36 Not only do we not know when Christ is coming back, we have been told that we do not know. At the end of his ministry, Jesus told the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, 1-13, in order to illustrate the experience of the church as it awaits his second coming. Matthew 25, verse 1, reads, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. The two groups of virgins represent two types of believers who profess to be waiting for Jesus. Superficially, these two groups appear to be alike, but when the delay of Jesus' coming occurs, the real difference between them becomes obvious. 
One group, in spite of the delay, had kept its hope alive and had made the adequate spiritual preparation. By this parable, Jesus wished to teach his disciples that the Christian experience is to be based not on emotional excitement or enthusiasm, but on a continuous reliance on the grace of God and perseverance in faith, even when there is no tangible evidence of the fulfilment of God's promises. Jesus invites us still today to watch and be ready at any time for his appearing. And so to finish today, though our very name Seventh-day Adventist testifies to how crucial the second coming is to us, how can we, on a personal level, keep the reality of the second coming before us? How can we, as the years go by, not make the mistake that Jesus warned about in the parable of the ten virgins? Tuesday, November 20, Jesus' Ministry in the Heavenly Sanctuary In the Old Testament, God instructed Moses to build a tabernacle or sanctuary to serve as his dwelling here on earth. Exodus 25 verse 8 reads, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Through its services, the sanctuary is where the people of Israel were taught the plan of salvation. Later, In the time of King Solomon, the portable sanctuary was replaced by a magnificent temple, and that story is told in 1 Kings chapter 5 through to 1 Kings chapter 8. Both the tabernacle and the temple were patterned after the heavenly sanctuary, the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man, it said in Hebrews 8 verse 2. Exodus 25, 9 and 10 reads, According to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Throughout the Bible, it is assumed that there is a heavenly sanctuary, serving as the primary dwelling place of God. The earthly sanctuary services were many prophecies of the plan of salvation and of Jesus' priestly ministry in heaven. Question. Read Hebrews 8 verse 6 and chapter 9 verse 11 and 12 and 23 and 28 and 1 John 1 9 right through to chapter 2 verse 2. What do these passages teach concerning Jesus' priestly ministry in heaven? First of all, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. And Hebrews 9, 11 to 12. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 9 verses 23 to 28 
Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. And First John chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Since his ascension, the heavenly sanctuary is the place where Christ conducts his priestly ministry for our salvation. We read this in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Therefore we are encouraged in Hebrews 4.11 to come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As the earthly tabernacle had two phases of priestly ministry, first on a daily basis in the holy place, and then once a year in the most holy place, the scriptures also describe these two phases of Jesus' ministry in heaven. His ministry in the holy place, in heaven, is characterized by intercession, forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Repentant sinners have immediate access to the Father through Jesus Christ, the Mediator. 1 John 2 and verse 1 My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous. Since 1844, Jesus' ministry in the Most Holy Place deals with the aspects of judgment and cleansing that were done once a year on the Day of Atonement, as recorded in Leviticus chapter 16. The ministry of cleansing the sanctuary also is based on Jesus' shed blood. The atonement performed on this day foreshadowed the final application of the merits of Christ to remove the presence of sin and to accomplish the complete reconciliation of the universe into one harmonious government under God. The doctrine of this two-phase ministry is a unique Adventist contribution to the understanding of the entire plan of salvation.
Wednesday, November 21, The Sabbath Another crucial biblical teaching that Seventh-day Adventists believe and uphold is the Seventh-day Sabbath. This is a key doctrine that brings unity and fellowship among us. It is one that, with very few exceptions in Christendom, we alone follow. The Sabbath is God's gift to humanity right from the creation week itself, as we read in Genesis 2, beginning at verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God created, and made. At creation, three distinctive divine acts established the Sabbath. One, God rested on the Sabbath. Two, he blessed the day. And three, he sanctified it. These three actions instituted the Sabbath as God's special gift, enabling the human race to experience the reality of heaven on earth and to affirm God's six-day creation. A well-known rabbi, Abraham Joshua Herschel, has called the Sabbath a palace in time, a holy day when God meets with his people in a special way. Question. What do the following passages teach about the meaning of the Sabbath for humankind? First of all, Exodus 20, beginning at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. And Deuteronomy 5 Beginning at verse 12, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, The Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And Ezekiel 20 and verse 20. Hallow my Sabbaths, that they will be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. In our desire to follow Jesus' example of Luke 4.16, Seventh-day Adventists observe the seventh-day Sabbath. And that text, Luke 4.16, reads, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. 
Jesus' participation in Sabbath services reveals that he endorsed it as a day of rest and worship. Some of his miracles were done on the Sabbath in order to teach the dimension of healing, both physical and spiritual, that comes from the celebration of the Sabbath. We'll look at Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity eighteen years, and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, and he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work, therefore come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. The apostles and early Christians understood that Jesus had not abolished the Sabbath. They themselves kept it as well and attended worship on that day. Some of these instances we read in Acts chapter 13, verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And in the same chapter, verses 42, So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that those words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And verse 44, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. And Acts chapter 16 verse 13, and on the Sabbath day he went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Acts 17 verse 2, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. And Acts 18 verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Another beautiful dimension of the Sabbath is its sign of our deliverance from sin. The Sabbath is the memorial of God's salvation of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt to the rest he promised in the land of Canaan. And we read that in Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 to 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep 
the Sabbath day. Despite the failure of Israel to enter fully into this rest because of their repeated disobedience and idolatry, God still promises in Hebrews 4.9 that there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. All who desire to enter into that rest can enter it by faith in the salvation Jesus provides. The observance of the Sabbath symbolizes this special rest in Christ and that we rely only on His merits and not works to save us from sin and to give us eternal life. Hebrews 4.10 reads, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And Matthew 11.28-30 Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so to finish today, in what very tangible ways has the Sabbath helped you experience the unity and fellowship that Christ desires for his people? Thursday, November 22, Death and Resurrection At creation, as it says in Genesis 2-7, God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This account of the creation of humanity reveals that life derives from God. Is immortality an intrinsic aspect of this life? The Bible tells us that only God is immortal. In 1 Timothy 6.16, Who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honour and everlasting power. Amen. Immortality is not given to humans at birth. In contrast to God, human beings are mortal. Scripture compares our lives with a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away, James chapter 4 and verse 14. And at death, our lives enter a sleep-like state in which there is no consciousness, as we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Never more will they have a share in anything done under the sun. And in verse 10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. And Psalm 146, verse 4, His spirit departs, he returns to his earth, in that very day his plans perish. And Psalm 115, 17, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. And John 11, verses 11 to 15, These things he said, and after that he said to them, 
Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Although people are born mortal and subject to death, the Bible speaks of Jesus Christ as the source of immortality and tells us that he gives the promise of immortality and eternal life to all those who believe in his salvation. Romans 6.23 reads, The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, it reads in 2 Timothy 1.10. And, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, John 3.16. So there is hope of life after death. Question. Read First Corinthians fifteen fifty-one to fifty-four and First Thessalonians four thirteen to eighteen. What do these passages tell us about life after death and when immortality will be given to human beings? First Corinthians fifteen, beginning at verse fifty-one. Behold, I tell you a mystery: we shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So, when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory." and 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that God bestows immortality upon people, not at the moment of death, but rather at the resurrection, when the last trumpet will sound. While believers receive the promise of eternal life at the moment they accept Jesus as their Saviour, immortality is given only at the resurrection. The New Testament knows nothing of the idea of souls going off to heaven immediately at death. This teaching has its roots in paganism, going back to the philosophy of the ancient Greeks, and is not found in either the Old or New Testament. So, to finish today, how does our understanding of death help us appreciate even more the promise of the second coming? 
How does this belief powerfully unite us as Seventh-day Adventists? Friday, November 23. As Seventh-day Adventists, we do share important beliefs in common with some other Christian bodies. The central one, of course, is belief in salvation by faith alone through the atoning and substitutionary death of Jesus. We, along with other Christians, believe that our righteousness is found not in our own works, but in Christ's righteousness, which is credited to us by faith an unmerited gift of grace. Or, as Ellen G. White famously wrote in Desire of Ages, page 25, Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for our sins, in which he had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness, in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life which was his. End of quote. At the same time, taken as a whole, our set of fundamental beliefs and the practices and lifestyle that emerge from those beliefs make us unique among the Christian world. That's the way it should be, too. If not, why even exist? At least as Seventh day Adventists. Our love of Jesus and the teaching we proclaim should be the most powerful uniting factors among us. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. In Faith and Works, page 103, Ellen White equates justification with forgiveness of sins. How is an appreciation of our forgiveness and justification in Christ a basis for our fellowship and community with brothers and sisters? 2. Think about how important our doctrines are in the context of church unity. That is, what has brought together millions of people from so many diverse ethnic, religious, political and cultural backgrounds other than our shared doctrinal beliefs? What does this tell us about how important doctrine is, not just in the context of mission and message, but for church unity as well? And three, our very name, Seventh-day Adventist, points to two crucial teachings, the Seventh-day Sabbath and the Second Advent. One part of our name points to creation and the other redemption. How are these two teachings related and in what ways do they together so succinctly capture the essence of who we are as a people? And to summarise this week's lesson, Seventh-day Adventists hold in common many fundamental beliefs. Some we hold in common with other Christians, others not. Taken as a whole, these teachings form our identity as a distinct church and are the foundation of our unity in Jesus. Inside Story 
Our mission story this week is titled Punished for Others' Sins, and it's by Andrew McChesney of Adventist Mission. When people first met the young boy, their first question was not, what's your name, but what's wrong with your legs? Jack Chen crawled along the ground in his rural home in central Taiwan until he was five. Through daily physical exercises, he managed to build enough muscle to stand upright when he entered first grade, but he walked awkwardly on the balls of his feet, prompting teasing and taunts of freak from the other children. Sometimes the boys spat on him as they passed by. Chen was born with a leg disease that puzzled doctors, but Chen and his parents had no doubt about the cause. Someone had done something wrong in the family, and now they were being punished. My family worships idols, and my parents believe that we were being punished for something that they or our ancestors had done, Chen said. When Chen was twelve, a family friend suggested that Chen, who was lagging in public school, might have a better chance studying at a nearby Seventh-day Adventist school. Chen heard about Jesus for the first time when he enrolled in the seventh grade. He read the Bible for the first time. He decided at the age of thirteen to give his heart to Jesus. The answer to his biggest question, why he was being punished for other people's sins, came about a year later, when he read of Jesus healing a man blind from birth. He read, And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. That's John 9, verses 2 and 3. Chen felt a heavy burden being lifted as he read these words. I realized that this was not a punishment, but a blessing, he said. If I didn't have this disease, my family and I never would have had a chance to know God. Chen went on to graduate from Taiwan Adventist College and now serves as a pastor in the coastal town of Jenning. He walks with a slight limp in one leg, but otherwise functions normally. He is married and has two sons. Jack Chen, 32, who's pictured here, marvels at how he found Jesus or how Jesus found him. I wasn't even a Christian, but I was looking for God, for someone who could save my life, he said. You have to open your mind first to look for God, and then God will tell you what to do next. You have been listening to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide by Dr. Percy Harold from Queensland, Australia. This service is brought to you by Hope Channel, the Sabbath School Department and Christian Services for the Blind. Remember, God is always faithful.